<laughs> My name is Clancy, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, and I'm very glad to be here this morning. I was, uh, I was afraid you were going to ask me to talk on something I didn't know something about, like serenity. <laughs> you can back and fill on traditions, they'll never know. <laughs> The, uh, one of the first lessons we learn in AA is to get places on time, then we can get seats. <laughs> oh. Oh. And she stuck out her tongue at the speaker. <laughs> there's a seat up here, and there's a seat up here, girls. There's two seats in the front row if you want to sit down, or sir, or anyone. You want to sit down here? May I, may I spend the entire morning ushering? Here. You have something in the loge? There's one over there. I didn't know I was setting up a relationship. I thought of just getting you a chair, kid. Well, anyway, I'm... <laughs> I'm glad to be here this morning because I think the, uh, although to many people the traditions are dull and something, they just read at meetings once in a while to see if newcomers can pronounce autonomous, <laughs> they, uh, they really are a great, probably the most important thing you and I have to deal with today because no one can attack the 12 steps. They are meaning, I mean, you know, that, that's our own thing. Millions of fringe groups have adopted them and made them almost jokes in their organization. But to us, they are still the only thing, way to go. But the traditions are uh, are intermittently under attack and have been since the founding of AA, and uh, since they were written at least in 191940s. And it's a, I think it's, they don't become really three dimensional until you understand what they're about. You know, in the whole history, in the four thousand years that they have written records of alcoholism. There have been all sorts of philosophies and therapies and treatments and from putting alcoholics to death to keeping them in prison to sending them away to all sorts of things to registering them as clinically insane. But the... Uh, only in the whole history of alcoholism has there ever been any, there's only been two times in which there's ever been any notable numbers of people who have stayed sober. And even the newest newcomer here, of course, knows who one of them is because you're sitting in a meeting of it. But the other one is something that we hear about, but we don't always remember what it is. And that is in 1840. You know, the, it's a funny thing, but the first half of the last century, the 1900s, for, or the 1800s, for some reason, nobody knows why, was the most drinking per capita in the history of the country, the 18, early 1800s. And six old guys who were having real trouble with drinking got together in a bar in Baltimore, and they got talking about how their problems were so severe and what they couldn't know what to do about them. And over a period of time, they, they had a plan for maybe they could help each other stay sober. If you want to drink, I'll help you, and if I don't want to drink, you help me, and so on. And they decided to make a little organization. They had some bylaws that they were going to stay sober and this and that. And it was just amazing. There had never been anything like this of a therapy made up of the patients. And so as a result of that, it really took off quickly. 
And uh, within a few months, there was a meeting in Washington. There was a meeting in New York. There was a meeting in Philadelphia. And uh, not very long after that, there were in several states. There were in Ohio. By 1841, there was a meeting as far west as Illinois. In fact, it's an interesting thing. In the, if you ever see a book of Abraham Lincoln's speeches, when he was a young lawyer, before he ever became famous at anything, he was well known in his city as a speaker. And he, he gave a speech to the second anniversary of the Washingtonians to their little chapter in Springfield, Illinois. And really, when you read that, it's amazing. I don't, it's his insight. He said, I guess what other people say, it's almost as though alcohol does something special for you people we don't know about. Now, nobody else ever thought of that. But anyway, so by this, and over as the years went by, it evolved into something very similar, in a sense, to the general structure of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, they had groups get together, and a guy from Philadelphia would go talk in Washington, and a guy from Washington would go talk in New York, and on and on, and over a period of time, they really, uh, they really developed well. Now, the staggering thing about the Washingtonians is this. In five years, by 1845, it was estimated they perhaps had as many as 500,000 sober alcoholics. Now, that's a, that's a lot in five years. When you stop thinking Alcoholics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous didn't have 2,000 in five years. This didn't have 1,000, very likely. And here's a half a million all over the country just... There's a seat down there in the end, ma'am. If you, you got a seat there? There's one over here if you like. Right. We get the we get the cute ones up front and put the dummies in the back. All right. Okay, Nancy, in the back. <laughs> but anyway, and they did something in 1845 around that time that would seem quite logical because people do it today. It seems quite logical. You hear it in any today. If Alcoholics Anonymous works so well for alcoholics, we should really be helping other people as well. We should really extend our services. And they began to realize that their organization probably could help other people and so they began to take in people with different kinds of troubles and different kinds of causes. There got to be a big wing of the Washingtonians that were addressed themselves to to uh, the abolition of slavery. Long before the abolition of slavery was a popular cause, they uh, had a wing that were in favor of prohibition of the sale of alcohol. It had never been tried in America. They finally tried, tried in the 1920s. But they had all, and they had people with. Domestic problems. They took in a lot of narcotics addicts. Not narcotics as we know today, heroin and cocaine, but things like laudanum and opium, which were the big narcotics of the day. And it looked as though they were going to take off and really take over, make the world a better place. Three years later, by 1848, the Washingtonians were extinct. Now that's incredible. There are a few left. I have a book home written in 1862 by one of the survivors. And he writes about all the places he went to to talk and how he went on a wagon train to go some one place and on trains and barges and canal boats. And, and he can't understand. He said, I don't know whatever happened. We had 
It was going so well. It just suddenly came apart. Nobody knows why. And uh, it, to all intents and purposes, the Washingtonians were an extinct movement. Now, I'll tell you how extinct they became. Just 100 years later, in the early 1940s, there was this organization called Alcoholics Anonymous, founded in 1935, as we know. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous in those days was having a terrible time. They were having all sorts of problems. People pulling against each other. People saying, we should, we should have really make ourselves be known so we know where we are and get our pictures in the paper. Even Bill Wilson did that at one time. Uh, there were people who had all different approaches to Because the main problem of Alcoholics Anonymous was always the same problem that handles, many times happens to deep, well-motivated spiritual movements. And that's this. Our goals are so notable and so laudable and so spiritual, we don't, know, we don't need rules because our spirituality will keep us on the right path. But what they always overlook is that such organizations must be made up of people. And people are not wonderful. And people are not totally spiritual. And people have different approaches and rationalizations and justifications. I mean, some of the things in Alcoholics Anonymous in those days, they sound ridiculous now, but there was a reason for them. And you can make a case for them. A guy in Florida was selling memberships in AA in Miami. And they, uh, they said, what the hell are you selling memberships for? And he said, I'm not doing it for my sake. He said, but I've noticed when people get something for nothing, they don't think it's worth much. If they have to pay for it, they listen. And I don't keep the money. I send it into New York. It's just so they will listen to what we're saying. Reasonable, reasonable point of view. Because, you know, a lot of people today go right by the doors of AA to go to some chicken shit therapy. That doesn't mean anything. I am... I'm not judging them. I'm just saying that's what happens. <laughs> Taper, I want that taken out. But cut in my image. The, uh, and Bill Wilson was having a lot of problems. And there was financial problems. And there was anonymity problems. And there was all kinds of problems. And in the late, early 1940s, about 1944, a guy in North Carolina wrote Bill Wilson a letter and said, you know, we're starting to sound like the Washingtonians. We're going to pull ourselves apart. Now, to tell you how obscure and how absent the Washingtonians were, Bill Wilson, the founder of the greatest movement in history in the treatment of alcoholism, had never heard of the Washingtonians. That's how extinct they had become. And he didn't know anybody who did. And he had to go find some books on it. And he found some books on the Washingtonians. And as he read them, he got a kind of, I guess, supposed to shiver down his back about how similar it was evolving. So he began to realize something would have to be done. He didn't know what, but something would have to be done. And so over the next few months, he wrote what has become known as the Twelve Traditions. And he wrote these traditions uh, in a large degree based on the Washingtonian experience and some on ours. And these Twelve Traditions that were read this morning that is not the way they were written, of course. They were written in the long form, which uh, you'll find in the back of your book. Incidentally, if you're interested in traditions, if you have any authority at your group, it, in our group in Los Angeles, West Los Angeles, where we have 1,100 people, so you can say we have a lot of restlessness sometimes. 
But we read the long form of the traditions once a month, and you can hear a pin drop. We read the short form three, because it, it really fleshes them out and makes you understand what they're talking about. But they had the, uh, so we read the, uh, they wrote the long form of the traditions, and then he printed them little by little in the grapevine to get people to understand them. Now, the main problem with Alcoholics Anonymous has always been the same. And it will always be the same, I'm sorry to say. I hope. It is full of alcoholics. <laughs> and that makes it impossible to have any rational business done ever without a battle. <laughs> and so a lot, great many members of AA throughout the country raised a terrible stink. We don't want any rules! We came here to find love and understanding. We don't need damn rules! <laughs> and there was all kinds of stink about it. And uh, they didn't want to do it. They couldn't. They had to have the membership accept them, but they couldn't. No place they could accept them. So they just became kind of a moot point, and people debated and argued about it. One of the things, as you may remember, for example, the number one tradition dealing with unity was one of the great battles of that time. In the sense, still is, but not the way it was then. Today, there's still any any groups. When there's more than one group in an area, pretty soon they'll be mad at each other either permanently or once in a while. I'm glad to see in, in Russia, Moscow, they finally got some AA in Russia. Now they've got two major groups, and they're feuding. <laughs> so we, thank God, they've taken on Western ways. <laughs> but uh, but the, at that time, you remember, you may or may not remember, but Bill Wilson in New York, his right-hand man was a man named Hank P. And he was the, and they had a terrible falling out in the early, late 1938, early 1939. And this Hank P. got drunk. And he spent the next few years traveling around to all the A groups that he could find in the country, telling them what a dirty bastard Bill Wilson was and to stay away from him. Really, really. And there were some terrible battles. And that's one of the great reasons, among others, that there was such a schism between Akron and New York. Akron had a, almost like a different organization. And most of the groups had to choose Akron and New York, Akron and New York. Guys in Chicago would come to Akron. They would go to New York. And on and on. It was really tearing apart. Oddly enough, Bill and Dr. Bob were in that way, but the followers were. And as most of us know, the, uh, the first international convention, they decided to have a first international convention to settle some of these differences to make people feel better. But they almost couldn't hold it because the alcoholics wouldn't give in. People in New York said, we'll go to a convention, but we won't go to Akron. And the people in Akron said, we'll go to a convention, but we won't go to New York. And they almost canceled the convention. And Bill and Dr. Bob got together and came up with a Solomon-like decision. Cleveland. Okay. <laughs> it sounds funny now, but that's the way humans are. We debate the same problem. So we had the first convention in Cleveland. And as many of you remember, uh, that's where Dr. Bob was dying of cancer and gave his last talk, in which most of us have read or heard about, where he talks about keeping it simple and not ever being too busy to stop and give the man behind us a pat on the back because none of us would be here if someone hadn't done it for us. And it's a touching and beautiful little talk. And he died a few months shortly thereafter. 
Incidentally, just in passing, has nothing at all to do with the traditions, but it's just it's an interesting thing to remember that we are dealing with human beings. In 1970, I was fortunate I'd been asked to talk at the International Convention in Miami Beach. But that is why I was thrilled about that. I was more thrilled because I'd been starting in 1960 when it, and then 1965 and 1970. The big highlight of the International Convention was Friday night when Bill Wilson would tell his story, his talk. So I was really thrilled and, uh, to go down there and a bunch of us, some friends of mine from Pittsburgh, and I walked over, got a good seat, and we sat waiting for Bill to come out. And they came out to a big Friday night meeting, 15,000, 20,000 people in this Miami Beach auditorium. We're very sorry Bill Wilson cannot speak. He is very ill. We knew he'd had emphysema very badly, but I didn't know how bad it was. He said he cannot speak. He will not be able to speak, and we're very sorry. We have a fill-in speaker. But uh, and you could just hear, oh, because people came from all over the world to hear him. And so they had another speaker. I, poor bastard. He didn't get much attention. <laughs> Well, we figured Saturday night probably he would talk. But Saturday night came and went and he couldn't talk. Sunday morning. Friday night we were going back to the hotel. I was talking, we were walking with an old guy named John McHugh from Pittsburgh. And, and I said, gee, John, isn't that sad? And he gets over the 1940s. Or, and I said, it's too bad, John, that we will never, we'll never hear this. Bill Wilson again. He said, oh, we'll hear him talk. He'll talk at this convention. And I said, John, the man's dying of emphysema. He can't talk. He said, he'll talk. So Saturday night came and Sunday morning came and thought, well, this is the time. But three different speakers. And the speaker got up and started to talk. And I, all of a sudden, somebody comes to the leader. And they wheeled in Bill Wilson in his wheelchair. <coughs> tubes up his nose and all over. Could barely talk. And people just were, oh. And uh, he got up. And some of you heard that tape, I suppose. He, he starts off pretty strongly. So glad to be here and so glad to see all of you boys and girls. And he talks for, oh, maybe two, three minutes, and all of a sudden he runs out of oxygen. And he slumps back in his chair. They wheeled him out to thunderous standing ovation. And he died a few months later. But on the way back to the hotel, I said to John McHugh, John, you must be some kind of a magician. How did you know Bill Wilson talked? Not another person here thought he was going to talk. He said, Clancy you got to remember, you're dealing with human beings. Do you think that Bill Wilson would want to said that Dr. Bob talked while he was dying and Bill didn't? <laughs> just, uh, and that's a true story. But anyway, what they did at that convention, they, uh, I have the tapes home, they gave 12 men each one tradition and they got up in front of the crowd and gave them six or seven or eight minutes to explain it so that people would realize it's not a threatening thing. And one after another, some took 10 minutes to get up and talk about the tradition. And they tried desperately to convince people, this, we're not trying to do anything and these aren't even enforceable but for our own good. And that convention, they adopted the 12 traditions. And that's when they became. Some of you people, you know, a lot of newcomers think the traditions and the steps were just here the day Bill Wilson met Dr. Bob. But they're, they're based on gallons and gallons of blood, I'll tell you, that people have shed to bring them about.
you know, you know, after his mind was like, the tree of sobriety is watered by the blood of its martyrs. And it really is. Whenever you start to flag a little bit, there's nothing like seeing, it's a sad thing, but seeing some that you know get drunk or dead, all of a sudden you remember why you're here. Brings the old timers up back to meetings for a while, I'll tell you. But the traditions, in fact, they were printed uh, in the short form and the long form in the issue of the edition of the book about 1941 or 51. Oddly enough, there was one change made in the traditions after that. And it's always an interesting thing because it again gets back to human beings. In the original form of the traditions adopted in the short form, the third tradition said the only requirement for membership is an honest desire to stop drinking. And after they came out, they realized only people after they've been sober a while got an honest desire to stop drinking. <laughs> you just better get any damn kind of in, stopping drinking wish you could get. So they took that word honest out. But that's once in a while when you see old, old time, they'll say honest desire to stop drinking. That's where it comes from. And so the 12 traditions have been the, uh, in a sense, the governing area without enforcement. As I've often said, I've always felt it was too bad we don't have an enforcement arm in AA. It would make it a lot easier for sponsorship, you know. <laughs> in my area, I'm known as a dictatorial type sponsor. And unfortunately, that cannot be true because, I mean, you can have a dictatorship sponsor, but it has to be with the complete approval of the dictatee. Because you have no way, you know, all he has to have to say is screw you, and that's the end of that dictatorship. <laughs> yeah. It's always been my theory. I wish we had people who'd come in the night and say, "Did you say screw you to your sponsor? <laughs> you still have relatives in Akron." <laughs> but we don't have any enforcement. We have one great enforcer of the traditions, but he. He moved so quietly it's almost hard to see him. A man named John Barleycorn. He will enforce these traditions little by little. He will, John Barleycorn, if you're too young to know who that is, that is the name they give to booze, John Barleycorn. And every so often he passes through our midst and snatches up the fools and takes them with him. And that's why we want to make it our business to not to be snatched up like that. But we have these 12 traditions. They're all very, we heard them this morning. There's nothing, there's I'm not going to give you a long harangue on the traditions this morning, but I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about two or three of them that are under attack today, because these are the these are the ones that we have to remember what we're about. The uh, probably you kind of combine two of them. The third, I mean, most of the traditions have no. I mean, no, they're not to, not under attack. They're quite unity. We understand what that is, and our leader, but trusted servants. And they're really not, nobody can tell anybody what to do here unless they want to be told it. But you get up to, thank you very much. (laughs) Sorry, I thought I was done. (laughs) My wife tells me she can tell when she thinks I'm talking too much when I open the refrigerator to get a Coke and the light hits me and I start to tell my story. But the third and fifth tradition could be kind of, I guess, joined together. 
because today, like the Washingtonians in 1845, and like organizations forever, the the message is there. Well, isn't alcoholism isn't that, and drug addiction and all these other things, aren't they all just one disease? Aren't they just, isn't it all just one thing? We should, should we not be interchangeable? We can all help one another? And it would seem so intellectually. There are some cynics, I'm sorry to say, who say that this concept of the one disease started in treatment centers that only had one van. <laughs> but I, uh, I don't... I don't say that. <laughs> but there is a school of thought that says this is all the same. And it takes a long time to understand it isn't. It is not. And to understand why it is not, to understand why you must be an alcoholic to be an Alcoholics Anonymous member, there's a new little mini flurry now that you, you don't say you're an alcoholic, that you say you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I think is defeats the purpose when we say anything. I'll tell you why. Again, over these 4,000 years, there's been all kinds of people who've treated alcoholics and treated alcoholics and treated them and given them philosophies and different types of treatment, and uh, it has never really worked. And the one thing that seems, the only two things that have ever worked have been the Washingtonian movement, briefly, and the Alcoholics Anonymous, somewhat less briefly, up until today. Now, I think it would be safe to take the argument, now for example, when we remember when Bill and Dr. Bob got together in Akron over here, and Dr. Bob was not interested in hearing about the Oxford movement, he already was a leader in the Oxford movement. He, he spoke on the Oxford movement around the state. He didn't hear, and he, he told his family, I'll give this guy 15 minutes, I really don't want to hear about it. But somehow they spent hours in there talking, and it changed both their lives. And they, as we remember, that they sat around the house. Bill moved into Dr. Bob's house, stayed there a couple of weeks, and they talked deep philosophy and the meaning of the Oxford movement and spiritual understandings. And Bill went on a train, and, or Dr. Bob went on a train, got drunk and came back, and they started over again. And they realized that what, what had kept Bill sober in New York was not sitting around discussing spiritual matters, but trying to help people. Even though they didn't stay sober, Bill did. And so they went up calling this poor boob in the... Akron Hospital who did not really want to hear it Bill D I'm sure most of you know that story he was a lawyer in Kentucky who who uh, was driven out of Kentucky finally to, made a geographical to Akron and he was a real southerner but he was a bad drunk and he is a people have been grinding him about his drinking for 20 years and he was sick of it he was married to a very strong woman I'm sure she guided him a few times uh, <laughs> I mean the guy you know I heard it many years ago. I said, how are you, Mr. Dobson? She said, he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Made me homesick, I'll tell you. <laughs> but anyway, they called on him. I heard him talk years ago, and he said, I was laying in that bed in Akron, Ohio. My wife came in and said, there were two fellas want to talk about my drinking. And I thought, oh, heck, I don't want to talk to nobody more about my drinking. But she insisted. So I talked to them fellers. And the funniest thing, they never talked to me about my drinking once. They talked to me about their drinking. And they talked to me about how they felt. And I never heard anybody describe me quite so well. 
And I was so impressed, I stuck with them fellers. I've been with them ever since. <laughs> and on and on. It always seems the thing that sets, and it's been that way until this very day, the thing that sets this fellowship away from all therapy, there's nothing new that I know of in the 12 steps. There's nothing new in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's nothing new here that hasn't been tried many times. What's different here is something else. You know, I think we can start with the premise, this premise, that the number one resistance to recovery is something you and I all have. I'm going to talk a little bit about it tonight. I'll talk about it briefly this morning. That is, that inherent feeling of, but my case really is different. And it happens when you're drinking, and it stays there after you're sober. And But my case really is different. And my case is different. I can prove it's different. And that is always, they talk about guys, one of the ter- terms they use in treatment centers in different places, they talk about being in denial. What does denial mean? All denial means is, my case is different. And that has always been the case. My case truly is different. I know you mean well. I know, doctor, you'd like to help me, but you don't understand. My problem really isn't drinking. It's all these feelings that you can't understand, and I don't even understand. All these things that have happened to me. Now, the biggest problem in the treatment of alcoholism is to overcome this feeling of difference. That's something that no one has ever been able to do, really. And it turns out, it's an odd coincidence, that the only two successful therapies in mankind have been where one has been talking to another to get around that but you don't understand as Bill D said them fellas told me about me when they were talking about themselves and Dr. Bob said actually that meeting with Bill Wilson I never heard anybody just that really understood me before and that's been the story forever and even that doesn't get to help people sometimes because some people's resistance is too great they're going to die on the streets Today I see people die from alcoholism on a continuing basis. That's really, it makes me feel sad because I've, I'm supposed to be a big communicator. If I said, I go all over the world to talk about Alcoholics Anonymous. I go to Australia, New Zealand, Tahiti, and Berlin, and London, and Ireland, both ends of Ireland, and Scotland, you know, big deal speaker. And I, where I work, I watch people that I know and care for die in front of me. You'd think the big deal speaker should be able to help them. But the big deal speaker can't because they're wrapped in their wall of difference. They've got a, it's no longer a feeling and it's now an obsession of difference. It's almost like a clear plastic bubble. And there's only one way to get into that and that's somebody inside. You've got to open it. And I talk to these guys and I can just see in their eyes. I know you mean well, Clancy, but you don't understand. I'm not, I'm not really an alcoholic. I have these other problems. And you try to explain that isn't the case. But even when I've been where he's been, in fact, some of these guys, I lay on that very same patch of sidewalk he did. He is laying on. So I understand what the feeling is. But nevertheless, he resists it. Now, if people in that position can resist it, for example, you walk into the Los Angeles County Hospital, alcoholic ward, charity ward, where people are dying from alcoholism and their livers are out to here, and their eyeballs are yellow, and they're, they're on the edge of death, and you're going to set up an any meeting, and they won't go to the meeting. I'm not a goddamn alcoholic! <laughs> and it's very funny, until you come back next month, and he's dead, and there's a new guy in his bed saying he's not an alcoholic. Now, if these guys 
literally dying can prove they're not alcoholics, prove their case is different. Certainly you and I can, if we work at it. So it turns out that what the, the symbolic difference, or the actual difference in Alcoholics Anonymous has always been, is that it, the thing that makes it different is that it's always one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. The, uh, we can talk all I want about how anybody can get the information, but that's not true. I used this illustration when I was talking in Seattle a couple of years ago at the convention, but I want to say it again because I don't know a better way to put it. But 1960, they formed Overeaters Anonymous, right near the AA club that I belong to in Los Angeles. And they had no successes. They just had five or six fat people. That's what they were doing, and they had the 12 steps. And I was skinny then. <laughs> but they had people come over from the AA club to talk on the steps and talk on obsessions and talk about emotions because that's what they were trying to get started. And they asked me to come over and talk on obsessions and uh, not on recoveries. I didn't know anything about that, but I knew about obsessions. And uh, I was one of the first speakers in OA and I weighed about 130 pounds, but we were trying to discuss weight. We were trying to discuss feelings. And I gave a good talk, I thought. These old fat people seemed to be... <laughs> Then I sat down and they had a little meeting and they went around and talked about their problems. Now I understood what they were going through and I understand their emotions. I understand all these things. But they made me sick. You know, I never heard such kind of talk. Pigs, you know, just... You ate a whole gallon of ice cream and ate a cake for Christ's sake, you know. I didn't say anything but I couldn't believe it. I just... Some woman talked about how she ate that she couldn't eat anymore. Then she went in the washroom and put her finger down the throat, threw it up so she might eat some more. And I thought, I don't want to shake hands with you on the way out. You know. <laughs> I can see doing that for drinking, but for eating? <laughs> and on and on. And I thought about, she's never going to come back here. But I thought about that later. Now, isn't that a perfect example? I probably knew as much about their feelings as anybody. And yet... I did not identify with what they were talking about because it doesn't do that for me. And that is why they formed over... Members of AA formed Overeaters Anonymous because they also had an eating problem and they couldn't help non-eaters, or eaters who didn't, weren't alcoholics. Narcotics Anonymous was formed by two members of AA who were also narcotics addicts so that narcotics addicts would have a place to go to and identify, one talking to another. Gamblers Anonymous formed by some of you know Sybil Corwin the oldest living AA woman now she's 51 and a half almost 52 years sober but her husband at that time was a terrible gambler and he uh, he formed Gamblers Anonymous in the early 1960 about 1960 and he's a good example for gamblers and he became kind of the Bill Wilson of Gamblers Anonymous he still his name is revered all over the country all over the world in GA Jim W and uh he gets so wrapped up in GA that he really didn't have a lot of time for A anymore. Understandable. So it was quite a shock to a lot of people when he got drunk and died drunk. But he uh, he was an alcoholic, see. And he had to do those things. And there was two members of AA founded Cocaine Anonymous in the 1970s. They're all formed in West Los Angeles, pretty much. I knew all the founders of all these organizations. And they were founded on one basis. I don't care what anybody tells you or anybody from any facility tells you or anybody else tells you. 
they were founded by people who had to find a place for people to identify their problem. Not to know that it's gambling, but to understand that there are other people who feel the same way that gambling gives them a sense of excitement that nothing else does. It doesn't do that to me. It couldn't help, I couldn't help anybody. I could say, well, you know, for Christ's sake, just gamble a little in the home, you know. <laughs> Eat like a man. <laughs> Get this man here to get me coffee. <laughs> you. <laughs> no, I already got it. He's already gone. <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna be a brown nose. You gotta be faster than that. <laughs> when I was young and working, a guy. I said, I don't, want to, I don't want to be a brown noser to the boss. And some old guy gave me some great advice that I'll pass along to you. And I want you to remember this. A little brown on the nose puts a little gold in the pocket. <laughs> you wouldn't have heard that in that sponsorship workshop, I'll tell you that. <laughs> You're learning about life in here. <laughs> But it really is a very serious point, this thing of talking one to another. And that's why it is imperative because to this day, I, I can, I, I've been working with narcotics addicts for 25 years, working with them and helping them, trying to get them straight. But I'll tell you something, I still don't really identify with a narcotic addict. I can't, I, that's not attractive to me to stick a needle in my arm or to sniff cocaine or do all these things. I want to... <coughs> Just have a couple of drinks, put that crap away, Luigi. No. I'm sure they have reasons for it, but not my back. But I don't understand. I mean, I understand all these things intellectually. Because what I have to have, and what you have to have, if we're going to have any help at all. Because all my life, people are saying, I understand, but hopefully we will find someone who says, I understand, and we will believe they understand. That is the biggest difficulty you'll ever have. I think, because Alcoholics Anonymous today is exactly what it was on June 10th over in Akron. It isn't the book, it isn't the meetings, it isn't spirituality, it isn't prayer, it isn't love. It isn't anything. These things are all great helps to it. But the basic tenet of AA is always as it's been. One alcoholic talking to another alcoholic to help him reduce his feelings of difference at least enough so that he will begin to take actions he does not yet believe in. And that really is the name of that game. That's all it is. So that's why you and I must make sure, even though it isn't always popular, that members, that alcoholics participate in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not because they're better or worse, but because we're, our primary purpose is to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers, not people who have problems. In fact, if you ever read the original draft of the 12 Steps, Bill Wilson had written without thinking, Practice these principles on first and carry this message 
to people who have people to other people. And they said, No, not to other people. It's to carry the message to alcoholics who still suffer. Alcoholics. They're not just drunken ones, sober ones. But people we can identify with. So, as I say, it isn't always popular. It's easier sometimes just to go along and say, well, okay. I mean, not only some people have doctors come. I guess there's egos trying to think they'll feel better if the doctors tell them they're really doing a nice job or ministers. They don't hear much about it, but... 30 years ago, they used to have ministers come and talk at AA meetings and priests. And now there are people with other obsessions. Alcoholics are uh, supposed to identify with narcotics addicts and Al-Anons and things. And they say, we're Al-Anon. We're all together. The very principles of Al-Anon, if you ever check with the Al-Anon office in New York, is exactly the same as AA. We are a separate organization. We, Al-Anon has no more to do with AA than the Knights of Columbus has to do with AA. They are there to deal with themselves. We are here to deal with ourselves. But we're so used to all bring your wife that we're all a big... It isn't. That's okay for a social evening or if you want to have a party or even a convention. But in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, alcoholics should share so maybe other alcoholics can find an answer. And that's what that tradition's about, folks. It isn't anything to be mean or cruel or selfish or didactic. What it means is, I want Alcoholics Anonymous in its present form to be here in case my grandkids need it. I don't want it to be like the Washingtonian movement where, yeah, we had a good thing going there for a few years, but uh, it isn't there anymore. It's all a bunch of different organizations. We, so I think that's very, very important. The other tradition that's under a little bit of fire, not so much anymore, was the seventh tradition, of course, where at one time, because it was an easy way to go, we ran our world service office. Much of our operating, operating expenses came from the sale of literature, which is all right. Except the number one customer of AA literature has been Hazelden. <laughs> take a markup and sell it. And we had to get out of that situation because we gave them a big discount. And we, they, we sold them a lot of literature. Now, what's wrong with that? It's just this. If your operating expenses depend on Hazelden's purchases, you put yourself in a position where one day Hazelden can say, look, would you just change this one sentence? It's no big deal. But it kind of looks a little, shouldn't be that way. Or just change this. And little by little, you put yourself at the beck and call and force it all over. So a couple of years ago, they took a stand where we're, not giving those enormous discounts to Hazel. We still sell to Hazel. We still sell to everybody. But we are not dependent upon anybody outside of our organization for our operation. And that's why it's important that in our own groups we must continue to send money to New York so we never will de- be dependent upon some well-meaning person looking out for their own interests at the expense of us. <laughs> Nothing personal, just uh, self-existence. Probably the last major object and problem under attack and is intermittently under attack is this thing about anonymity. Because it really would seem, wouldn't it, you know, all these other fellowships, all these other places, treatment centers, hospitals, Christ is standing by the door of Betty Ford is like going to the Academy Awards, you know, just... <laughs> 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 it's 
the rate of sobriety is not staggeringly high, but it's a but they got classy failures. <laughs> that has nothing to do with Betty Ford. That has something to do with them after they get out. Because the one thing you gotta remember is that the uh, the big problem I guess one of the big problems is that uh, the treatment centers they are much attacked and they are much defended by their various followers in AA. I, for one, I, for one, uh, was raised in an era when there were no treatment centers. I got sober and we we treated with disdain. People came from treatment centers and finally disgusted and finally wanted to kick him. But over the years, <laughs> and when no one was looking, through they were small and crippled, we did. <laughs> You with the crutches, come on up here, I'll show you what I mean. <laughs> the, uh, but over the years, my uh, my feelings have changed towards them because I understand there are good treatment centers and bad treatment centers. And the in fact, I've, we got a few minutes. I've, I've mentioned something I haven't talked about for years. I, uh, this came to me, I think, in a blinding flash in Montreal, 1985. I was talking, describing something. This is just another exception you get to the traditions. You get it now. The difference today between good treatment centers and bad treatment centers at no extra cost. <laughs> just leave your love offerings here with my assistant Igor. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I was thinking of the analogy. I thought of an analogy. Let's say we go to Cleveland. We want to go to Canada. We want to take the lake, go to Canada. And you come to the lake shore, and here's a lovely little skiff, very clean, white, white jacketed attendant saying, Come in the SS treatment center. Out of the galley comes a smell of food wafting out, and you just, Boy, that looks pretty good, yeah. And then you go down here a few ways, and here's two guys skulking around the tall grass saying, uh, You want to go to uh, Canada with us? We got an invisible boat. Uh, how about it? Oh, Jesus. Not really. I'm, I'm sure you guys in A are doing fine, but I'll take this boat if you don't mind. Okay, pal. <laughs> so you get this boat, and they do just what they say. You get the boat, they clean you up, feed you, take you out, and it's just great. Only one problem. You just get out of sight of land. They say, well, that's as far as we go. We ought to go back and get another guy now. Well, we're not there yet. What are we going to do? Well, you're in good shape, you're well fed, you're clothed, you're well rested. Swim like a some bitch. <laughs> you know. And uh, you go out there and swim like a some bitch. Some people can't make it. You get pushing, you oh, I can't make it help. And here comes these two guys by in their invisible boat. Want a ride, pal? I'm not that sick. <laughs> So you swim some more, and here they come again. <laughs> How about now, pal? Yes, I'll take your home. And they lift you up and put you in the boat, and you dry off, and suddenly realize there's no boat here. You're just floating. It's just. What do you want me to do? Well, pick up an iron row. <laughs> You're crazy, you bastards. <laughs> Pretty soon you keep, and you're almost dead again. Here, on a ride, pal. <laughs> put you in the boat. What do you want me to do? Pick up an iron row. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and the odd thing about A is this. 
as you begin to row, the boat appears. But it doesn't appear until you begin to row. And as you row longer, the boat gets bigger and stronger and sturdier. So pretty soon the skiff means nothing. Pretty soon you don't even want to go to Canada. Just stay on the boat. <laughs> That's what sponsors are for. They can buy every so often and say, Hey, you got that oar upside down. Oh. <laughs> So, that's what A is about. Now, what's this got to do with the difference between good treatment centers and bad treatment centers? It's just this. The bad treatment centers, some of them, not very many of them left, because a lot of them are out of business, and they're more and more going out of business because the insurance companies are starting to cut back on the 30-day inpatient treatment. But they tell them things like, uh, when they get out, they let them think, you've taken all the steps now, well, you're in 30 days you've been here, you should be prepared to make it. You'll be all right. And they think they're well, and some of them die as a result. The good treatment centers do much the same thing, except when they release them, they say, you're doing fine, but look for them two fellers in an invisible boat and roll like a sumbitch, you know, <laughs> no matter how it looks to you. And that's the difference, because the difference of treatment center recoveries are whether or not they go to AA. They always have been, always will be used to be a big major chain in California. Big one. As the last holdout against AA. We don't have to AAs. We have, we have the answer here. and uh, They're out of business. The whole thing went bankrupt. Chick Shadell in, in uh, Seattle. I remember 30 years, 25 years ago, they said that you could re they could return alcoholics to social drinking. And uh, until enough of them died, and they didn't. Now they say they can recover for 10 days, but they also have one little chapter now that's devoted to AA too because there may be some weird really bad cases who need AA <laughs> you remember any, some of you are old enough to remember the 1970s when the RAND Corporation in California made headlines across the country this big think tank RAND Corporation says alcoholics can return to social drinking and boy I'll tell you that was a staggering headline of course that little type that said except those who can't you know. <laughs> but, I'll tell you, there was a, and they had, they, they based it on a series of actual recoveries who had returned to social drinking. And somebody did a follow-up years later, and they found that they all were drunk, and most of them were dead. And I knew a guy at the Rand Corp, he says, what kind of goddamn follow-up did you do that these, you thought these people were drinking successfully? So I don't know, we called them up. <laughs> I thought I could just see some guy going, Yeah, still doing okay. <laughs> I can say anything on the phone. It's just that when they look at you and smell you, it looks bad. <laughs> but that's the difference, in my opinion, between good and treatment centers. That's why. When we get together at meetings, that's all meetings are about, really. Once you've been sober more than a week, is to remember to keep rolling, to encourage one another to keep rolling. That's all it's about. But this anonymity over the years has been under a lot of pressure. Because they say, wouldn't it be nice if somebody got up and said, I'm an alcoholic, and that would really, I'm a member of AA, and that would get people to come. Now, in the 1930s and 1940s, they were very frightened about anonymity. And so they the number one thrust of anonymity then was to protect the people in AA from being found out. Over the years, it's been a different thing. Bill, one of Bill Wilson's, maybe his last letter, 
he wrote in 1970 was about anonymity and it's just the opposite where he said anonymity is something that's necessary to preserve our spiritual purpose here because one of the great problems the Washingtonians had first of all they got the great battles over who, who was the most prominent Washingtonian who had the most publicity who got the most stories that was one of the things but there's something even worse than that has become uh, I become aware of this I there's no explanation for it but I'm giving you my theory of it as far as I've been able to see it when a celebrity or someone like that publicly says I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous I put myself in the position of being the person helping them they are no longer helping me I am now helping them with my magnificence and thereafter I'm in a superior position to them I don't I really can't get much help from them because I've already I'm already helping them. Because every case I have seen where publicly people have broken their anonymity, they have never profited from it. It has always been a deterrent to them. I remember years ago, a little more obvious, the woman who wrote, I'll Cry Tomorrow, what's her name, Lillian Roth. I remember seeing her around AA in, in LA years and years ago, and she wrote that book, and the people said, you really shouldn't break your anonymity. She said, I'm going to help AA. I'm going to help AA. After that, she never was the same. And a couple years later, she's face down, drunk in the streets of Palm Springs. And people say, doesn't that make AA look bad? I said, no, nobody gives a shit how the AA looks bad. She's going to die as a result of it. That's what's going to happen. And uh, Diana Barrymore, in her book, read the end of that book. That's a funny little called uh, Too Much Too Soon. She talked about how she was a member of AA. Now she, and they, she was helping them as much as she could. They helped her a little bit. But she... She wasn't quite like them. She could have a little wine with meals. But uh, she helped them. And, and when she died drunk, it would create quite an upset. And on and on and on and on. There are people, we've had presidential candidates declare to be AA. Because they figure it'll give them some kind of advantage. Thank God it doesn't. I, I love alcoholics, but I wouldn't. I just think of an alcoholic button. Hand, finger over that red button, you know what I'm saying. I don't know what you're aiming at now, but just somebody, you know. They looked at me funny from a passing bus. <laughs> Most, that's what I like to think when I hear these new organizations where they, all of your inner child is responsible for the actions. I, uh, I'm in a different situation. I've, I've got an inner adult waiting to get out. <laughs> You better get out quick. I don't have much much time left. You know, I've not had a happy childhood, but it's been a long one. Just a <laughs> one of the great problems today, just in passing, again, we have a couple of minutes. We don't talk about the tradition. I don't talk about everything I've ever learned. <laughs> one of the great problems today is people sliding into victimization therapies because I'll tell you, it takes away it takes away some of the sting of your guilt, but it puts you in a in a position you cannot stand. I, I think the classic line years ago, I talked to Dr. Bob son Bob Smith, who's an old friend of mine. This was years ago. I said to him, when, uh, I'm not talking about the Al-Anon adult children because they work the steps and I think come out of it but the other one is a commercial one where it's up to their financial good to keep you sick for as long as you live and I, that's, I don't know if that's true but that's someone told me but anyway hey, Dr. Bob sounds was joshing one day I said I suppose you're going to be a new, new president of ACA huh? you're the original adult child of an alcoholic and he got quite testy with me he said no I'm not 
He said, one thing the program has taught me, I don't want to spend the rest of my life playing the role of a 17-year-old neurotic. And that uh, kind of tells that story pretty clearly. We all have to deal with those problems, but eventually you have to come to a point where you discover then was then and now is now. I better get out of my life. But this anonymity thing <coughs> turns out to be a, a great spiritual help to all of us. A spiritual thing in the sense that anonymity is a, is a surrender. Now they say, well, you can't help breaking your anonymity. You can help break your anonymity. Because of the nature of my work, I'm on television all the time in Los Angeles. And I'm a, I've had newspaper articles written about me. I've had the article in the Reader's Digest and on and on and on. Not in my magnificence, because of the work I do. And they all want to know, you know, here's a guy who used to be drunk and is now doing this. And not once has my anonymity ever been broken. And you may, some of you may not understand what anonymity is. I used to get letters from the Reader's Digest article who said, you broke your anonymity from me. People I'd never heard of. Tell you how you, and what anonymity means. Anonymity means that you cannot publicly ever be identified as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what that means. Now, there are people who go on talk shows as representatives of AA, but are, or as members of AA, but they don't break their anonymity as long as you don't see their name and you don't see their face. They sometimes do it in silhouette or they do it off camera. They are, there is nothing wrong with being a recovered alcoholic. Because that's what you are. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Recovering alcoholic. But I'm, I can never publicly say I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in any way. Because that violates the tradition of personal enmity. Where in, instead of me being helped by this program and spirituality, I am now using it for my own self-aggrandizement. Using it for my own purposes. I'm using it and I destroy this spiritual concept of surrender. Because it really is kind of a concept of surrender. The, uh, you really have to give up being something. A lot of times I've been on radio talk shows where, where, where I've talked for AA and they ask me questions. I, I'd like to say, my name is Clancy Ellison. Right. My name is Alcoholic Al. One guy had me on. That was one of my favorite programs this woman called in. Or Before that, I had uh, been talking about my story how I committed suicide in Texas and had to be put in the insane asylum. And I remember this announcer's eyes got a little wet and said, just a minute, Al. He said, do you mean to say that you actually killed yourself and had to be revived? And I said, yes. I just heard it. I just heard, heard myself say it. I already knew it, I guess. <laughs> and he said, I, I, I've never known anyone who actually tried to kill himself before. I guess I'd been in AA too long. I said, my God, I'd never heard anybody who didn't. You know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> all right about it. Wait, things were a little strained after that, I'll tell you. But, but I remember that, but that, that this woman called it a very, very high society voice. She said, well, uh, I have wine after dinner many nights, and I sometimes drink to excess. Is there a name for that behavior? And I... I was in one of my good moods, so I said yes. And in AA, we call that being a wino. <laughs> and then she made a noise like a dial tone. <laughs> oh. 
But you and I must maintain the principle of anonymity. We must make sure it's maintained. Not to protect ourselves against people finding out. There's another side of anonymity too that I know some people disagree with, but it comes from Dr. Bob, so I have to believe it must be correct. He always said the people who maintain anonymity within the meetings are as guilty as the people who break it without the meetings. That's why I said my that's why I say my name is Clancy Immuslin. I'm an alcoholic. I'm, I don't care who you are. It just seems so incongruous to me. Hey, uh, give me a call sometime. I'm in the phone book. My name is Fred. <laughs> Fred R. Does that help you? <laughs> the, uh, the principle of anonymity is to use, stop me from using Al- Alcoholics Anonymous for self-aggrandizement, to keep it a spiritual surrender, a spiritual tenant in my life. So really, most of the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous are quite clear and quite specific, and most of them have no problem, like groups are autonomous and all these things. But the, the things under attack, must you be an alcoholic to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous? In fact, Bill Wilson has written a specific little brochure on that subject. I wish I had a copy of it. But she says, Signed Bill Wilson. Can a non-alcoholic be a participating member of Alcoholics Anonymous? She says, no, they cannot. But they could go to other fellowships. You can be an alcoholic plus something, but you must be an alcoholic. To me, it's always seemed, I really don't want to hear people get up and say, my name is Jim and I'm an alcoholic and an addict. I don't care what else you are. Because all that tells me is that you still want to be different. We are here to find similarities, not differences. Because if we don't, you could be different till you die from it. Doing the best we can, we're still going to be different. But we better pull that difference down. And I know what they mean. They're, they're just trying to be straightforward. But I don't tell. I'm an, al- I'm an alcoholic. To me, that tells me all about it. That you cannot handle things that change reality for you. That's what it means. So... The traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous are quite clear, quite straightforward, quite interesting, have an interesting history. They're not just some abstract nonsense floating on the wall. They're something that you and I have to protect if we are to stay sober and if we are to maintain the viability of Alcoholics Anonymous. So as I say, your grandchildren and mine, God forbid, become alcoholics. They have a place to go where they will hear the same things they heard in Akron in 1945 or they heard in New York in 1953, or they heard in Los Angeles in 1958. And that's what we're here for, and uh, I hope that I hope that you will join me and all the rest of old fuddy-duddies in keeping these traditions absolutely straight. Thank you. <laughs>